Well, hello everybody. It's great to be back online on a story archaeology Q&A session. We haven't had much chance to get together for a while now. And even now we're having to record in separate places. But oh, somehow yes. we have been keeping busy. Now, Isolde, yeah, what have you it... been up to? I, I'm looking forward to hear this because I don't understand it either. <laughs> well, um, the explosion of online conferencing and particularly with the platform Zoom, other platforms are of course available, um, has actually meant that I've been able to do way more than I otherwise would when things are happening in faraway physical locations. So um, one of the things has been a dance project that was online for this year. Uh, we have moved that onto Zoom. <laughs> so yeah, we're having kind of... Um, quite regular workshops where we have everybody on Zoom together. We pass a movement around. We do exercises together and improvisations. Uh, we break off into smaller groups where sometimes we're doing, like I've done a, a, a duet with one of the dancers where we're making use of the side-by-side -side videos on the screen and playing around with that. Um, it's meant that it's really reinventing movement so that it fits within this tiny little box. Um, so that's been really interesting. Um, I also did a, a piece with another dancer where we made little sort of 60 second videos, uh, just using, just focusing on our hands. And then we'd send the video to the other one and they'd respond and add that on and send it back. So we had this kind of um, pen pal conversation game of consequences um, and that worked out really well so that's still ongoing and uh, still working on that and that'll all go up online in some form or another uh, over the next few months. I, I, I think it's absolutely fantastic I, I'm afraid for me a very very busy, busy schedule of workshops and um, working with the Toyn project. I was just about to do the first children's Oinok in Roscommon at Rathcroffin itself this year in May and the whole thing just stopped instantly. And since I work with big groups in libraries and schools, everything kind of came to a halt. So I'm trying to reinvent everything I do because even in September, we don't know whether it'll get going again. I've got a new website called uh, Stories at Home. Uh, I'm trying to rework all my workshops. It's hardworking drama and storytelling so that you're working on Zoom. And when you do a lot of work with young children, who knows how it's... It's very difficult to tell. Trying to rework my projects for September is a nightmare. But nevertheless... As some of you may have noticed, there is a whole section now on story archaeology uh, with activities and stories for children and young people based on the Irish stories. And that I will be putting up more audio stories, which seem to be going down best. So That's keep great. going, yeah. see what's happening. Yeah, exactly. We'll just have to reinvent everything as we go along. <laughs> it's been a challenge. It's not one I was it expecting. Is. I had a successful life until this year. <laughs> Oh, and my other love, of course, is travel. And so yeah. working in schools and traveling. Well, if I didn't have my garden, I think you'd probably find that I'd gone completely spare. <laughs> <laughs> yes, absolutely. But between one thing and another, we thought we would try and do another question and answer podcast. Um, since, you know, it's, it's a while since we've done the kind of fresh research that... Uh, informs the series that we make but we have had messages and questions and we thought we would try and answer some of those today mm. and then we've got a, another podcast on a particular topic but we'll save that one till later but we'll follow very shortly on this so we've got a couple of interesting things to pass on now hopefully yep absolutely and we've chosen a, two or three topics to discuss today so could you introduce the first one, Isolde? Right. Well, the first one um, is a question that we get asked about on a fairly regular basis, I would say, and something that we talk about on a fairly regular basis. But we got a particular question from Christina Thomas, uh, who also uses Wirgen, and um, they're in Kentucky. So hello, uh, Wirgen, and thank you for your question. And this was a question to clarify about terms that we keep on using, and those terms are fear, flathoven, and core. 
Now, we go on about this an awful lot, but just as a very basic clarification on what the words are. So, fear, flathoven, first of all. Fear is F-I, father, R. Um, that's Foxtrot, India, father, Romeo. Um, and fear literally means truth. It's the same in modern Irish. And then the second term of that is flathoven. That's F-L-A-T-H-E-M-O-N, Foxtrot, Lima, Alpha, Tango, Hotel, Echo, Mike, Oscar, November. There we go. (laughs) I couldn't do that. (laughs) Uh, So Flathaven means of the noble. Um, Usually the whole term fear Flathaven is rendered as the king's truth or the prince's truth. And... It really refers to serious obligations that were on kings. Now, when we say kings, we mean all the regional leaders and then the sort of provincial leaders as well. So it was on this kind of um, pyramid scheme, I suppose, of rulers. Um, and there's this obliga- obligation was to make correct judgments. And they did, of course, have help in making those judgments. They would have their poets and judges as advisors. But Fear Flathman, really, it's very like a Gesh, which is G-E-I-S, which is Golf Echo India Sierra. And it's, which is often called like a taboo or a magical obligation. And breaking the Gesh or breaking the Fear Flathman has disastrous, really supernatural or hypernatural consequences. And when it comes to fear of Lathaven, it's especially the failure of crops, it's sicknesses of people and of animals, and starvation. Mm. Um, so and these were very real consequences on a leader's failure. I have to say, it does make <laughs> it you wonder... Does. Which world leaders that we've had in the last century or so would be held responsible for climate change? Yeah. I think there's just too, too many, many to choose from. Yeah. <laughs> well, in an earlier QA session, we did talk about how we use the word coir to communicate the central importance of natural justice. So how close is this to the term fear flatathon? Uh Well, coir, which is C-O father I-R, that's Charlie, Oscar, Father, India, Romeo. I'm getting quite good at this. You are. Um, (laughs) See, all that trivia comes in handy somewhere. Um, We started using cord when we were uh, exploring, in particular, the Daita's relationship to land fertility and the balance of the seasons. And this is way back when we were discussing Maitura in our second series. But in particular, it was from this little poem from near the very end of Maitura, where the Dagda is retrieving his harp and he calls to it. He says, Tar daur da blau, tar coir kethercher, tar sav, tar gav, beola crut as bulgas buina. And that's when he's rescuing both his harp and his cattle from the Fovera, from the Fovera camp after the Battle of Maitura, isn't it? Exactly. So it's very much part of the restoration. It's acts that restore, especially the procession of seasons, that tar sav, tar gav, that's come summer, come winter. And the balance. So, yeah, not only balance, but also um, proper change, everything mm. being in its right place. And so when we were examining that piece and we were wondering how we would translate core in terms of the core Kethrachwyr, which is one of those, uh, one of the names for his harp. The best that we could come up with was rightness, but it's a very deep form of rightness and almost like natural justice. And it did um, seem a good term. Oh, That's... yes, absolutely. Um, and the thing is that rather than the fear Flathaven, which is just about the responsibility of the rulers to keep the order, the core seemed much wider and to apply to the underlying concept mm. of fear Flathaven. And after all, I mean, the kings can't even give a judgment unless they've had an advisor or three <laughs> on hand to tell them what to do. <laughs> so it really is kind of an expansion of that Fear Flathaven term, going beyond just what the leaders do and more into every element of both society and the natural world. I mean, we've said so often, 
you know, if I can go back to the king's poet, who was, who was really central to this process. I mean, I know the kings had advisors, like historians and so on, but it was the king's poet who really had teeth. Oh, definitely. I mean, it's been said before, and we'll say it again, that if a poet made a satire on you, that it's expected to create real physical blemishes, um, and particularly, you know, raising welts on the target's faces. And it's worth kind of remembering here that the term for honour in Old Irish is the same as the word for face. It's enoch in both cases, which is Echo November, Echo Charlie Hotel, enoch. Um, so the sort of abstract concept of honour was not no different from the concrete concept of what your face actually looks like. Really is saving face. <laughs> it Absolutely, in the most literal sense. But... What we can say is that kings certainly didn't have divine right, which is post-Norman, no. and they had no hotline to a god. It was a very different situation. Exactly. I think the other thing that, uh, since this was an oral society, there was a genuine power in the spoken word. You know, law, and well, both senses, law as in L-A-W and L-O-R-E, and genealogy, yes. inhenicus. These were all stuff that was largely held in memory by trained poets and historians. You couldn't go and look things up in books or even the internet. It was all held <laughs> in the minds of these trained people. So this exactly. memory store was a very powerful thing. It was. And that memory was linguistic. The memory was of words. Um, and those words then are... Have they literally make the structures that people live mm. by? Uh, but in terms of the memory as well, we're keep on finding now more bits of evidence that shows us just how reliable our oral records are. You know, because we we're dealing with texts which are recording what was oral at the time of their writing, and they're turning out to be really actually very reliable sources. Mm. But we are going to go back into that in our next episode, yes. which is genuinely new stuff. <laughs> because we found more evidence for longevity of story, something that both you and I have been looking for a long time. And it's yeah. been hard to prove, but it's becoming more acceptable as time goes on. But that, let's, that, that, we're exactly. going to be talking about that a lot next, a lot next time. Yeah, but yeah. <laughs> just let me just pick up something. We're, we're accustomed to a world where leaders just grab words that sound good, mm. but we don't expect them to hold to the lit literal truth of their promises. I mean, nobody expects politicians and leaders to keep their promises. <laughs> this is stuff stuff that they just say for the spin of it at the time. It's what sounds good, yeah. and we're all completely used to this. And one thing we do know is you have to read the small print. But in an oral society, in an extremely concrete way, words could be said to make the world. I think this is what gives us our magic word, the power of the, the, the spell, yeah. is actually that words, what you said, was what happened. Exactly. And we are so far away from that now, you know, that, that we see the spoken word as something incredibly Malleable. ephemeral. Yeah. Yeah, and that it's gone as soon as it's said. But this was not. This is not the case for an oral society. No, there, there. The word was the thing that happens, and I think this is behind the idea that the poets had the gifts of prophecy and all the rest of it. That what they said happened because they, exactly their word was making the world. I, I think yeah. it's a very important concept that that sometimes gets missed because it's so alien to us today. Exactly. Yeah. So. If I could sum up, it seems to me that what you're saying is that Fear Flathorn represents a contract that's not specifically between ruler and people, but between the ruler and the land. And if the contract is broken, things just stop working. Yeah, exactly. And that idea of the contract, and there has been some uh, discussion recently about social contracts, which are generally unspoken in our current society. But of course, when we're talking about an oral society, the only existence of a contract is spoken. Um, and that social contract, uh, it does exist in our early Irish society between the ruler and the people, but there's less distinction 
between society and the natural world. If one fails, then the other fails too. And it's, I think it's taken us till now, really, to remember just how intertwined human activity is with the ecosystem. And we can see that really reflected in that idea that if a king judges wrongly on social issues, then all of the crops fail and there's disease. And yeah, Yeah. how familiar is that? (laughs) I'm still trying to sum up, I think, about Mm. to just get to the heart of what it's about. So I find interesting, it's not specifically about keeping peace, although order, status issues, societal positioning, well, that's very much the centre of natural law, I think. Yes, exactly. And you're right, it's not about, you know, being peaceful necessarily. Because no, we you know couldn't that... say that. Exactly. But, you know, no more than there is peace in the natural world. So, again, using that kind of ecological approach to the structure of society, each role or each position within that society, it's like an ecological niche. So they all need to be kept in balance with each other. But also each niche needs filling for the entire ecosystem to work. That really works. I like that. I think you've got that perfectly there. (laughs) Yeah, the other thing, it's not about personal hubris. It's not like so many kings in history. They go against the gods or they disobey the Pope or something and then everything Mm. goes wrong. Holding to the contract is not about keeping the gods on your side even. And in fact, the other world is just as likely to demand the help of the rulers, warriors and other groups in societies. It may require something from this world to to keep this natural balance, this natural justice. It works both ways. It's not, they're not against or for you. It's not really about personal hubris. Uh, It's not as if uh, the, you you know, so many kings in history, they do something wrong and uh, they disobey God or the Pope or something and everything (laughs) goes wrong. Holding on to the contract is certainly not about keeping the gods on your side. In fact, I suppose the other world is just as likely to, to demand the help of rulers, warriors or other groups in society. That happens a lot in the stories. It does. And if it requires something to keep that balance, that natural justice, it works both ways. Yeah. Does that make yeah. sense? Yeah. So a core applies as much to the other world as it does to this world. Yeah, and... that's what I'm trying to say. You just yeah, said it yeah. quicker. <laughs> But yeah, like you said, it's not it's not like the classical Greek thing of angering the gods and then being punished for it. You know, it's it or the medieval thing of disobeying God and the Pope and everything oh, coming yeah. down on your head. It's quite a different atmosphere, isn't it? Quite a it different is. way of working. Yeah. Well, that that takes me on to another thing I was thinking about. It's not specifically about the personal or spiritual morality or quality of the ruler where it doesn't impact on natural law. You know, the, the, yeah. he's, he's more likely to run into problems if he suddenly gets spots on his face like Fergus <laughs> McLeager or suddenly goes ugly. That yes. wouldn't affect a medieval king. No, certainly not by some of our uh, stories, all right. Um, it's it's much there more as a concept, isn't it, though? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's much more about their actions and that the actions have these sort of very concrete literal consequences. So if the leader gets it wrong and breaks that social natural contract, then everybody suffers in this world and in the other world. The milk dries up, uh, the animals die, the crops fail. And it is partly about this relationship between this world and a parallel other world. So if that fails as well, then that's also breaking the flow and the natural order and that will lose fertility. So I suppose that would be the only kind of semi-spiritual quality to this is that it breaks a link between the physical world and the world of imagination of the other And world. even that is regarded as a concrete thing rather than a moral quality. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Well, it sounds like it might be a useful concept to bring back in some ways. In some respects, um, I certainly wouldn't want that Gesh back with, on Kings of Tara where they can't have any physical blemishes. Um, <laughs> it would get rid of a few. It, it oh, would. Oh, very but, unfair. But it's also deeply ableist and I'm oh, not yes, having I that know. back. Thank you very much. 
No, I'm only, I am joking. I, I know, I, I know. Yes, yeah. It's far more an aesthetic uh, no, I was <laughs> argument there. Thinking of, never mind. I'm not going to go yeah. anywhere. I'm not going to go anywhere. No, nope. that's interesting. Yeah. What are the other kinds of requests and queries that we receive tend to be around quotes or stories that appear in the Levergavala Aaron, uh, the book of invasions or the book of the taking of Ireland, um, which is a very interesting text in its own right. For example, I was recently replying to a message from Mel Breeder about a quote from the Levergavala. Yeah, and in our podcast we have in the past made reference to the Levergavala strand and we use this terminology as an alternative to the usual mythological cycle terminology. Now we've also talked about the baptism and death strand and I think that's really quite a nice shorthand it says what we wanted to say. (laughs) I thought it was you who coined that description. Well I thought it was you. I can't remember now. It was probably both of us. Yeah. <laughs> so just remind me, give me the background on the Levergavala. Well, now there is a question. And in fact, that question is answered in wondrous detail in a paper by John Carey, which is called The Levergavala and the Legendary History of Ireland. And this is, I'm working from a version which was updated in 1999 after a conference. And it really charts the interesting history and development of the Levergavala. Now, when we talk about Levergavala, we're talking about a prose text and it originates in that version from around the 11th or 12th centuries. There are four really very different recensions, versions. One of them is in the Book of Leinster, Our Dear Friend, which was um, written down in the early 1100s. So that's kind of the point where we are in our literary history. Now, when we start looking at the predecessors for the Levergavola, there are a few strands that kind of come together to create it. The earliest strand would be dynastic poems. So we're talking about genealogies and genealogical lists and poems. And these are giving legitimacy to specific regional families and regional powers around the country. Um, Another main strand that contributes uh, to the creation of the Levergavola is one that's a bit more philosophical and a little bit more conceptual. And that's a story that we get from the Orokepnanagus tradition, which itself is a very kind of um, philological, linguistic, grammatical, um, philosophical background for poets to learn. Um, And in the Orokept, we find a fantastic story giving the tradition for the origin and indeed the superiority of the Irish language to all other languages on earth. It's this gorgeous story about a scholar um, who is present when the Tower of Babel is thrown down and all of the languages are separated. I think in this there's like 72 different languages. But this scholar called Phineas, I think, and I can be corrected on that, examined all of these new languages and picked out the best bits from each and he put those together (laughs) and that's Irish. (laughs) As you're talking about the Tower of Babel story, the the one that's known in the, the Hebrew Bible. The Hebrew, a Hebrew Old Testament. Yeah, that's interesting because that story itself is kind of attempting the same syncretic job that the Levergavola is attempting, and I know you'll get to talk about that. I will. Yeah, and 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 scholars believe that that story, that Hebrew story, is reflecting the Hebrews' astonishment on encountering the highly cosmopolitan city of Babylon mm. with its massive great steps ziggurat, which because they weren't used to that step shape, was something they hadn't seen before and may have looked unfinished to them. It was so high and unfinished that they thought that, uh, and they're meeting this cosmopolitan city with all the different languages Mm. and this is their way of sorting out what might be happening. So it's interesting to hear hear this story taken and used to support the superiority (laughs) of 
language. I think that's great. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, actually, in our next episode, teaser time, we will be returning to some Irish versions of Tower of Babel stories. So make of that that's what you true. will. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. Now, in a go, different context. Absolutely different context. But to go back to kind of the threads of Irish scholarship that have led together to create the Leverkavola. If we go back to the 8th century, Irish scholarship became very much more outward looking and kind of cosmopolitan itself. And um, it was very close in particular to Welsh scholarship. So that would be on the island of Britain. And this is when the Irish monks, the Irish scholars started to travel to the continent uh, that would be after the um, Easter controversy. Yes. Wasn't that where the Irish church won smug bragging rights when the central <laughs> church decided how to calculate the date of Easter? Yes, yes, exactly. And and so it kind of uh, gave the Irish church both a kind of international standing, but also a kind of authority for their scholarship. And they started to export that scholarship and especially to neighbouring Wales. I mean, it's only a hop, skip and a jump from Hollyhead as anyone who's taken the, the ferry knows. But at all events, uh, we do have evidence that Irish scholars were visiting the area of Gwynedd in Wales really very often in the course of the ninth century. And that and was often... Loads of, that was loads sorry. of Ogham stones with Welsh, uh, it, in Welsh, with Irish... Um, exactly. Aren't there? Exactly. Yeah. There's all kinds of crossover there, and very often, you know, the, the uh, Irish scholars were hopping off to the continent, but would take a little break and, in Wales, you know. And I suppose that's why we find such a lot of influence between the Irish sagas and the Mabinogi. Absolutely. You know, they were sharing their stories, and that was influencing them as as they developed. Um, but there's one particularly interesting kind of cross-fertilisation that happens with this uh, internationalisation of Irish scholarship. And that's uh, a Welsh text uh, called the Historia Bretonium or Bretonum. Uh, my Latin is non-existence. <laughs> Never um, mind. Yeah, but th this is a Welsh text or a British text. And this is the beginnings of really what we would now recognise as history, as in the true story of what happened. And uh, so the, the Historia Britannum is one that is writing British history, but it's starting to synchronise with classical and biblical accounts in particular. Um, and so the, the Irish started doing that as well. They started trying to uh, uh, make all these things refer to each other and create this overarching schema of Irish history. And to quote, Carry here uh, that schema found for the Gales themselves a niche in the progeny of Adam and in the tapestry of universal history, uh, which I think is is a good <laughs> that way. That works of, really well. It's yeah, nice, yeah, isn't it? Makes it? sense. Yeah. So we have this task of accounting for the origins of the Irish language from the Oricept, and that was interweaving with the genealogies of the which legitimised powerful families, and also then the influence of the that new idea of history and of synchronizing everything and what you get with the Levergavola tradition is the creation of a more or less unified idea of Ireland um because of course those genealogies they're very regional parochial really um and with the Oricept linguistic idea you have this unifying Irish language to bring peoples together. But it's only then, and in comparison with the way other parts of the world thought of themselves, that you you get an idea of a country. And mm -hmm. but even that, it was never a very stable idea. Um indeed, like um the doctrine of the Levergavola itself was used later in the Middle Ages, like in post-Norman times especially, to distinguish between the true Gales and other random inhabitants of the island. And these were often really overtly racist in tone. Like they were they would analyze physical and moral characteristics of people, and that it was said then that these are 
you know, degenerate groups who had descended from the Fearbulg or the, you know, remnants of the Fovera. And so, you know, very <laughs> yeah, quickly. Like the, the men of the, the men of the bogs. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so. Or the Fororian monsters from Donegal. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You know, so as soon as you have this kind of concept of a country, you start, there's immediately people trying to exclude some groups from that concept, which is unfortunate, mm. but that's how it happens, you know. Trying to create a history, which we now know as pseudo-history, but yeah. trying to, this is why this is why it makes the book kind of difficult. You can't take it literally. You have to mm. look at what it really is. Yeah, and the context um, that it arises from. Yeah, I mean, there's another of the Carey quotes, uh, and it just about sums it up. As late as the 17th century, arguments for one region's superiority to another were based upon the doctrines of the Levagavola. Yeah, and in, <laughs> in some ways, I think that that almost still goes on with people trying to track down, you know, I don't know, genetic variants or, you know, movements of people in order to uphold that doctrine of the Levagavola. You know, are you descended from the sons of mill or are you descended from the people of partalone you know i think it still That's goes why on it's a wonderful book of stories but yeah. you can't trust it as a a source of what happened no it, it's i think ultimately you have to see it as a political document um yes. sorry I'm, I'm getting um <laughs> snuggled here by one of my cats <laughs> by gilders and he keeps on trying to rub himself off my microphone so apologies <laughs> if there's some interference. <laughs> so to get back to the Levergavola, um, when it was being composed, uh, which we're talking about the 11th or 12th centuries, there are two other works that were being composed in Ireland around the same time. And they both dealt with the ideas of the ancient past. So they are both Irish versions of uh, continental texts. The first one is the Sex Aetates Mundi, I presume that's Six Ages of the World, um, which was a treatise on biblical chronology. And then also there was an Irish version. Not doubtful enough. Well, yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, but there was also this, uh, an Irish version of the Historia Bretonium was being created, and that's the, the Lever Bretnock um the Welsh book or the British book. And so these were being composed really in parallel to those early the earliest versions of Levergavola. And so we have these three strands again. We have the succession of Irish peoples and their kingships. We have the chronology of the Bible and we have this uh Welsh or British idea of history. And while they were all being worked on at the same time the earliest versions of those texts are definitely independent of each other like the earliest Irish versions they're independent of each other definitely parallel but very quickly subsequent versions show borrowings one from the other so they were really seen as equivalent in their subject matter you know so they started to kind of meld into each other it's actually quite a jumble, but I suppose they were just trying to make sense of a rich strain of lore and story fragments. Yeah, and as especially... people do today, just trying to get it together to make sense. And of course, you have to accept it for what it is, yes. not as a whole cloth. Yeah, exactly. And it's very much of its time. It's very much, you know, influenced by the concerns of scholars at the time and some of those concerns they're very they're outward looking they're cosmopolitan they're international you know so I think it's it's a really interesting moment in history that's reflected mm. yeah well, you've got another one of those moments in the I think it's the 15th century and again in the 19th it's what we used to refer as the complex Com, uh, the the compact strata. Yes exactly um, but because they stratas yeah. stratum yeah strata. <laughs> Because I was right they, the first they borrow, time. Yeah, they borrow so much from each other that it it can be very difficult to disentangle, you know, what bit fits where and what relates to what. And that syncretic process causes them to become very compacted. Mm, it does. Very tight, very dense. Yes. Which, I mean, they're wonderful stories, but yeah, as I keep saying when, when people ask me about it, you can't actually trust the source mm other than as the source of that period. Exactly. If that makes sense. Yes. <laughs> um, 
I was thinking about the Levacavola. That, that, that there's a story of Tuan. Now yes. he's an ancient man who's relating to his past, relating his past to a saint, a bit like Oshie does. Yes. Only he hasn't been off on some other world island. He's lived through all the ages, and he's not exactly eternal, but he's witnessed each stage of human existence each invasion if you like mm. in a different shape which i think is quite interesting yes he's one of those shapeshifters you know he spends some time as a stag and some time as a fish and all the rest of this and that story itself it, it seems to originate from the latter half of the ninth century so we're, you know it's very kind of much at the beginning of the Levergavola strand if you like yeah so he's kind of guaranteeing the truth of the traditions of former ages mm. Because he's been, you've got to create this character who's supernaturally preserved. And he stands as guarantor, if you like. Look, I've seen it all. I'm yes. telling the truth. So it's it's another thing that's helping to bring it together. Yes, yes. Uh, it's that kind of first-hand witness, I suppose, which in an oral society, of course, um, gives us precedence. Um, so this is another way another uh, quote from Carey here he says about the the story of Tuan this text seems indeed to be the first which bolsters the pseudo-historical schema in this way and so the saint whether it's St Patrick or Cullum Kill or Finia represents the ecclesiastical intelligentsia who become the custodians of the formerly oral traditions when they are made into a written form and it serves as well also to register the church's approval of the cultivation of this knowledge, which I think is important as it well. Legitimizes it, it, it legitimizes it. It legitimizes it. It does. Yeah. And it makes it's okay. You can look at your own past. Yeah. You know who you, it's a bit like the arguments with Oshin and St. Patrick. Absolutely. That's, I, that's, I think they're more interesting. Yes, but it is part of the same structure. Um, Kerry goes on to say that just as important as the revenant and the cleric is their audience, which are the folk of the land who look on as the lore of the past is transmitted and whose world and identity are defined by the history and genealogy based thereon. So yeah, yeah, I think that sums it up. Yes, very it's, well. It, it's legitimizing the past and giving it in a form which is safe to be transmitted to the future. Or yes, yes, and it also then sort of recreates or re-cements the foundation of the people um, mm, as defined by history. What, yeah, what happened in a lot of countries towards the end of the nineteenth century, in fact. Yes, creating a national narrative which uh, is supportive for the time. Yes, definitely. Yeah, and okay, let's go back to the baptism and death bit. Yes. <laughs> We did relate that to the Levergavola strand, although baptism and death endings are certainly not limited to that particular source. Well, no, they're not. And I mean, the story of Tuan that we were just talking about from Levergavola, it does have the baptism side to it. It has that legitimization from a cleric. But the strand that we're talking about when we talk about baptism and death, it does extend into later texts. In particular, the first written one would be the Ogle of Nishinoruk, which is the earliest written text which concerns Fionn and Ushin and the Fianna. And as you were saying, it does have that structure of Ushin relating what he has witnessed to St. Patrick. So mm -hmm. in a way, that's almost like the original baptism and death story. <laughs> <laughs> and whether you or I originated that phrase, <laughs> it really reminds me of the extreme irritation I used to feel when I first read some of the old Irish stories. Yeah. Many years back, when I was very young, and I think it began with the story which still annoys me at how popular it is, <laughs> The Children of Lear. Yeah. Now, I can't say I ever found the story romantic. The three kids went through and overcame so many hardships, 900 years of them, and then when finally they returned to a world that owes them a life, they probably have to die. Yep. Baptism and death. It drives me round the bend. <laughs> I felt the same about Ushin's fate at the hands of Patrick. He's implacable. <laughs> and as a child, I felt like it was Patrick who had killed them. <laughs> I mean, there's another one, the fate of Ethna, the heroine of what I refer to as the House of Two Buckets. Well, <laughs> yes. that's just as annoying. 
Yeah, that would be the the Ultram Tugador Vether, I think, is what you mean with that. that. It's a two buckets. It's two buckets. It's just so much easier. Yeah, we talked about um, that story way back in, uh, what, it was when we were looking for Mither and Mananon. It was. It was a search for Mither. Yeah. But I think that part of the subtext of this kind of story is that Patrick or Christianity in general, it does kill off the older characters, or at least it subsumes them into a new narrative. Although, in another way, the baptism half of the formula, it does give that a Christian audience permission to enjoy and retain these very non-Christian stories. I'm sure you're right, but <laughs> treating the children of Lear like it felt remarkably like child abuse to me. <laughs> oh, definitely. And uh, before we get uh, complaints, there are four children of Lear. We do know that. That was just a slip of the tongue. So... <laughs> Yes, yes. So no, I didn't notice that. Sorry. That's all right. Did I don't say, worry. Was it me? Did I say three? I don't know which of us it was. Of which of us it was, but we know there's four. Well, there's three <laughs> boys and a girl. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Sorry, I was thinking. I suppose. Yeah. It. I was. I. I yeah. Sorry. Never mind. I think it was probably me. It doesn't yes, matter. Yes, there are four. There are yeah. definitely four. <laughs> But I do think it's interesting to compare the Leverg of Ola strand with the Baptism and Death strand. Um, because the Leverg of Ola strand, it's part of the project of historiography, creating the entire idea of history. Um, it puts vernacular scholarship into what was then a global context. I mean, you know, back in the ninth century, uh, Europe and the classical world and the biblical world, that was the extent of the world, you know. So mm-hmm. that is very much part of the Levergavola project. Um, and with that, you start to get myths being regarded as ancient history or prehistory. <gasps> and I have to say, there were many intellectual contortions performed in order to align these with genealogies mm-hmm. and annals, along with the biblical and other European historiographies. I mean, they were gymnasts, uh, yeah. mental gymnasts. And even till even to very recent times, when mm. you opened a child's history book in Ireland, it mm-hmm. started with myths, as if oh, yeah. they were the original history stories. Yes, it was still there. Yeah. As if, uh, and the number of people who who sort of say when I when I meet children at Rathcrohan, and they say, "Oh, but Queen Maeve was real." Yes, yeah. And yeah. I don't quite know how to answer because she's a very real character. Yes. And there yeah. were probably many Maves. This is what I usually tell them. There were many powerful queens, all of whom were just like Maeve. Yeah. And that's the best way I can put it. Yes. Yeah. Similarly with sort of answering, you know, where does Finn McCool fit into all of this? You know, that is is he from the ancient past or the medieval past? It's like, well, no, he's he's from mythology actually. <laughs> mm. Mm. But his stories, I always felt his stories went back further because they were full of woods and deer. But yes. that's another matter. It is, yes. Um but to get... This is why we put off Finn because it's so complicated. It is, it really is. But to, to get back to looking at the baptism and death strand, it's I would see it as somewhat subsequent to the Lever Gavola strand. So once you've got the Lever Gavola project, which places mythology into this pre-Christian past, it separates it from the audience of the present. It it becomes something other and something untouchable. The baptism bit does legitimise all those native heroes, but the death bit places them in this unreachable past. Mm, mm. And I do think that prior to this project, that mythology was very much parallel to history and to genealogies and so on. You've only to look at the Dinhenicus, um, which in some cases comes to us from the same manuscript. So like the, the Book of Leinster, for example. And so... You know, it, it's in terms of when it was written down, it's absolutely uh, the same time as Levergavola Strand. But in the Dinhenica stories, you get these contradictory histories, which are offered both equally, but with no reservations or no, not necessarily saying this one is true and this one isn't. But of course, mm. with so much of the Dinhenicas being preserved in poetry, Poetry has a much longer half-life than the prose, which is the basis of Lever Gavola and the Baptism and Death Strands. 
Mm-hmm. Mind you, I still have a lot of sympathy for Oshin, who's not at all happy, you know, in the arguments. Yeah, do you mean the argument of Shinorak? Yeah, yeah. When yeah. Patrick informs him that Finn and the Finn are in hell, and he says, and I think I've given the Lady Gregory mm. translation here, my story is sorrowful. The sound of your voice is not pleasant to me. I will cry my fill, but not for God, but because Finn and the Fiona are not living. It's quite yeah. interesting in that particular baptism and dress strand. strand uh, oh, it, the it past certain, is yeah. mourned so much more than in other strands. Yes, yes, I think so. And that there is maybe that's when we start to get a sense of nostalgia for a lost mm. past, you know, the lost golden age, whereas previously, you know, it's still there. The, the golden age is still reachable. Just all you have to do mm. is look at the other world, you know. And that it connects with the fact that a lot of the Finn stories go on developing because they're part of oral tradition. Yes, absolutely. So, yes, they do become part of a lost golden age. Yes, yeah. Now, we started talking about strands as a way to re-examine that traditional division of Irish literature into cycles. Yeah, and I still haven't managed to pin down the origin of that schema. I don't know who did it first, whether it's, you know, from one of the medieval manuscripts or whether it's 19th century scholarship. Well, it, it's it's well known, mm. but it's it's still feels a bit flawed. It doesn't always explain everything. So you usually get the mythological cycle, the yeah. Ulster cycle, the Fenian cycle, and the historical cycle, you know, the cycle of kings. Yeah. It's okay, but there are other ways of looking at it. There are. I mean, I think those cycles, they're, they're largely based on, you know, which characters appear in which story. But I think that with those four cycles, there is a kind of chronology implicit in it. And I think that that, itself comes from the influence of the Levergavola schema of mm-hmm. making so, certain characters prior to other characters. So, yes. Yeah, so if you've got, is the Ulster cycle not mythological? Mm. And how do you, in which case, how do you deal with differences, say, between the Battle of Moitura in its original form and the Children of Turin, which is very much later? Yeah. And hugely different. Or even the differences between the Battle of Moitura and the Second Battle of Moitura. <laughs> I think rather than grouping stories according to which characters appear in them, we started to examine them as archaeological layers in a sort of stratification. Yes, yes. And this is very much work that's ongoing. But I do think that with this discussion and particularly trying to uh, trying to differentiate the Levergavola from uh, the baptism and death strand, I do think that we've demonstrated that there are important differences. I mean, particularly when you look at the Levergavola and some of the Dinhianicus appearing in the same manuscripts. But there are differences despite or maybe even because of their interconnections. It's interesting. Is it? There's a yeah. lot more. Sorry, that was all quite dense, but I think it's we, we talk about these sources a lot, but yes. sometimes they need really looking at themselves. Definitely. Well, and finally, something, it is like the end of the news, isn't it? Exactly. And finally, something a bit lighter. <laughs> yeah, we had an interesting message from Dragonfly, who I think might be in Australia. And their message says, hello, I'm a new listener, etc., etc. And uh, let's go back to, here it is. Anyway, I was wondering if there was any evidence of si- or if situationally it makes any sense that the Morrigan's one-legged horse might be a Nidstang-type practice. I'm aware that's Germanic, but it is a sort of one-legged horse, and its presence certainly does not bode well for the one it is visited upon. And the Morrigan showing up is also not usually a good sign for the future. (laughs) Given that the Nidstang horse head curses the one it points at, I imagine her going to offer aid to Cúchulán, being turned away, and then she points the horse head at him and makes her challenge. Oh, we're back to the Morrigan's monohorse. Yes, indeed. It's always, it's, a, it's one of the most startling images, I think, it anywhere. Is. Yes, um, it comes from the Toynbo Regovna, and we discussed that 
this really fascinating story, which we will eventually get back to, I promise. It, one of our many divings and delvings into the extra nera. Yeah, series three, Dinhyanicus, episode eight, The Cow and the Time Machine. There we go. So, and Chris, if you can read that description from the Toynbo Regatta. Okay. Then they saw the chariot come before them and one chestnut horse in it. The horse was one-footed and the pole of the chariot passed through the body of the horse till a wedge went through it to make it fast on his forehead. It's so bizarre. <laughs> it's wonderfully bizarre. <laughs> now, I admit I had to look up what the Nijtang is and I fell down a really fascinating click hole uh, as a result. Yeah, I had heard of the custom, but I wasn't particularly familiar with it. And it is a very interesting idea. I think when we first discussed the monohorse, in passing, I had considered some association with the Welsh Murray Clid or the Irish Lawyer Vaughan. Mm. They seem to be at least in some part connected with the hooded animal tradition. Now that's usually a horse or another animal skull or skull lookalike on a pole and shrouded with fabric dra drapery. Yeah. But the thing is, the Welsh horse is generally translated as a grey mare and the Irish is white. Well, as as any horsey people know, um, most horsey people describe a white horse as being grey anyway. Okay, and that's, I forget and, that. So white and grey, it's the same yeah, thing. Yeah, that's even before you start going into that wonderful world of colour words in Irish and Welsh. So Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, 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 I know one is called the white horse and the other the grey horse, but yeah, I'm not a horsey person. So to me, <laughs> all horses are grey in the dark yep. sort of thing. <laughs> Interesting, I think the Irish... Uh, image is most commonly found in Kerry, although I did find a couple of Donegal stories in the school's folklore collection. Yeah. Now, I'm afraid I, afraid I couldn't translate them. They weren't transcribed into Irish and they were handwritten. Yeah, no, that's one of the problems with the folklore collection, of course. It, it's in the process, I believe, of being digitised. Um, oh, yeah, and a lot of them are in English, yeah. but these not only are Irish, but they're also handwritten yeah. and really difficult to yeah. read. Yeah. But does it surprise you to find them in Donegal? Oh, no, not in the least, no. Um, I mean, there are also uh, sites uh, up and down the West Coast uh, where you get um, sort of me megalithic sites, particularly just standing so stones and things like that, which are also called Lower Vaughan so, or Lower Vaughan. So it does, it's a Western seaboard thing. And the fact that they would have, okay. it, it's not surprising either that they would have um, survived into the most isolated edges of the Western seaboard in, in Kerry and Donegal. Now, that's interesting. It, it changes slightly what I was thinking. I mean, the hooded animal, mm. particularly horses, are generally found at midwinter mumming, Morris, wassailing events or, or the Renboys yes. events. Yes. Which is why I hadn't associated if when you associate them with the seaborn seaboard they could then connect with the horse of the sea uh, well uh, i think it's it's more likely just that you know in the same way that the gaeltachts tend to be on on the western seaboard it's just to do with geographical isolation and so traditions last longer in those isolated okay. places but certainly their, their associations are midwinter yes yeah and, and this is very much true of the welsh yes. horse and the other thing that I can't help feeling, I mean, it seems obvious to connect them, and yet they have a very different feeling from the Morrigan and her horse. Yes. The image I have in my head of an emergence from the cave is rich and red yeah. rather than white and grey. I believe she's clothed in red. Yes. Her horse is a chestnut. You get that wonderful, extravagant red gold. Yes. And also, she's seeking to take a cow to mate with a bull. That's not really midwinter. No, it's not. It, it has a very different feeling. Yeah, yeah. Now, it's also true that it's quite hard to do more than speculate how far back those hooded animal customs go. Exactly. They're, they're quite obscure. And often people think that, you know, they may not be as old. No. As, as people think, or being reintroduced with different... 
um, emphases. It's very difficult to tell. Yeah. It's not a simple thing. Yes, exactly. And like you say, a lot of them were revived, especially on the island of Britain. There were a lot of traditions revived. Certainly in Britain, yeah, and yes. as recently as the 1970s you know, or if not more so. And so when something oh, gets yes. revived, obviously it's it's in a new context. So, you know, it has new influences and, yeah. and a new audience. And I have to say, even here, we have experienced customs that, oh, we've done that forever. Yeah. And I know we actually started it last yes. week. Um, <laughs> it's, it's, and you go, right, that worked. It's the, because people already think we've been doing it for ages. It's the chopping, so it of, must have felt the right. chopping of the ham into two for the Christmas dinner. Uh, which I've yeah. heard from two separate sources who swear blind it's from their own families where, you know, mm. in cooking the Christmas dinner, um, they always cut the ham into two and put and put it in two different pots. It's like, well, why, why do you do that? It's like, oh, we've always done it oh, that way. It. It's the tradition. My mother did it. My grandmother did it. And then you ask the granny and she goes, I didn't have a big enough pot, so I had to cut it into two. <laughs> <laughs> That's how traditions for work. for years, <laughs> my, I used to empty a baked bean can but I would never clean it out I would always just tip it and if there were beans left I wouldn't use them I just throw them away you just tip it out and I remember my mother doing that yeah but it was actually because I think during the war that some cans were suspect oh yes or they weren't made with a proper grade tin yeah and so you don't want to take a metal spoon and scrape it yes yeah because you might get lead poisoning or whatever yeah and I think it was one of my children was saying why do you do that and I was thinking I don't know yeah I do it because my mother did yeah. it so I stopped doing it <laughs> or bought plastic plastic bean yeah. pots instead yeah. but it it's but the thing I wanted was thinking about though was the how do you pronounce Nidstein? Yes, I presume if so. If I'm pronouncing that I, right. Again, it's Does... Scandina- Scandinavian, which is another area of ignorance it's, for me. It's a closed book to me, yeah. I'm That one, as far as the pronunciation. I have enough problems with pronunciation. <laughs> But it does strike me that it does have more resonance with the role of the Morrigan than the other hooded animals because it represents a warning of something wrong that must be put right. Yes. You know, rather like a poet's notice of satire. Yes, I think that's a very good comparison to make because from what I read, the Nietzsche has to do with pointing someone out who's done wrong in the community mm. and very much like that with when the poet is giving notice of a legal satire they have to plant the cross in front of the satire's house saying what they're what they're accused of along with the line of praise and the line of blame so that it doesn't count as illegal satire so i think it does have a lot of resonance with that as a practice you know, a, a, it's just the color yeah. feeling. It's just the, the as a storyteller, mm. the basic elements of the two stories or the two practices yeah. just feel different. Yes, yeah. But I think it's a really good idea. It's interesting. Um, but the thing is, some background reference or context might have been lost. But it could just be one of those gloriously extravagant instances of transfers between the two yes. worlds. You know, like the unwoundable red-eyed <laughs> cats or marauding cannibal yeah. pigs. Kind of good special effect moment in the middle of a story. Yeah, it could even just be the storyteller really challenging their audience's imagination. Going, you know... Go and visualise yeah, Don't think about elephants. <laughs> but I, I, but it, it's so hard It to is, but I... I a good idea. Yeah, and I did wonder when we started talking about the monohorse again and that description with the pole that goes straight through the horse and out its forehead. Is that my unicorn hobby horse? <laughs> so the Morrigans <laughs> on a unicorn hobby yeah. horse. Oh, the Morrigans, my little pony. Exactly. <laughs> that That's what makes most sense to me, I have to say. <laughs> oh, that kind of reduces suddenly this glorious red gold image of this uh, you know the hair blowing and the horse in it you the, the chapel is the horse would have to hop you can't think about it too much i think it's the morrigan who would have to hop actually <laughs> no it does feel like she's leaning up yeah <laughs> oh i don't know i don't know but it's a really good idea thank you for the yeah, suggestion yeah that's great um thank you to everybody who has been sending us messages we've gotten so many good wishes questions being asked and comments being made and generally keeping us on our toes 
And thanks for putting up for us. It's been a long time, yes. but there's been it's been difficult to get together. There have been all sorts of things from illnesses now. And suddenly, here we are with the pandemic. We finally got going well, again. This, is, this has been my experience throughout this lockdown. Suddenly, there's opportunities that uh, weren't there before. <laughs> yeah. It's a challenge as far as I'm yes. concerned, a great big challenge. Let's say it's a very exciting exciting challenge to try and reinvent my exactly. life. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll have another special report very shortly. We've, we're already working yes. on it. We just couldn't fit it into this one. So this one's based on some recent very exciting and very interesting research. Yes, so more on that very soon. Now, you can still donate via PayPal. And that's, I have to say, especially important now, as all of Chris's schools and libraries work has just come to this shuddering halt since lockdown. <laughs> yeah, for the foreseeable future. It's going to be a while before outside visiting facilitators will be allowed into school bubbles. Yes, exactly. Uh, it's it's actually education is one of the most difficult yes. areas to re-establish. Pubs are going to get going before I schools. know, and it's um, schools have been left behind somewhat, I think, in all the arrangements. Well, it's that you see, they don't have wonderful ventilation no. systems. They have small corridors, small rooms. Yeah. Uh, it's and uh, to be honest, young primary school children, children under seven or eight, no, they can't social no. distance. It doesn't no, work exactly. Doesn't work yeah. at all. Um. Have a look at the schools project that I've put on Story Archaeology. And if it's any use to you or you want to pass it on, do. And other topics are there on stories. It's just www.storieswithchris.com. So that's what I've been up to. But I'm looking forward to getting the next this next piece of research out because it's certainly got me interested. Yeah. So thanks again for joining us and for listening to our rambles and our banters. And we'll be speaking to you again very shortly. So goodbye, everyone. So from Isolde and me and oh, your oh cat, yes, I yes, think. from Gilders as well. <laughs> short because I've been occasionally hearing his tail yeah. go thump thump thump. <laughs> Gilders short for Gildenstern, by the way. And yes, he has a sister called Rosencrantz, who are both alive. They are both alive. Yes. <laughs> Well, until quite soon, till next time, but it will be very soon, just a week or so. Okay, goodbye. Bye. <laughs>